welcome to episode 8 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. I'm your host Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode we're talking to fellow Bend, Oregon resident, Max King. He's one of the most versatile elite runners in the world. Not only has he won more races than most people have even entered, but he's been a world champion at a diverse set of distances and events, including being a 2014 100km world champ. On top of that, he's a coach with multiple camps, group workouts, and other similar things that he does mainly based in Oregon, and he's basically involved with every facet of our sport. So this show delves into Max's running history, starting at college at Cornell. We discuss what he learned from collegiate running, including from the 3,000 meter steeplechase, plus how he's competed at the top level at the Olympic trials two times in each of the steeplechase and the marathon. Then we discuss the lessons he has from longer distances up to 100 miles, as well as his experience and practical knowledge from obstacle racing and even skiing. Uh, we round off delving into his camps, coaching philosophies, and his experience as a race director during COVID-19. And now a word from this episode's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we're making the right decisions to keep our bodies healthy, to live better, be resilient, take control, and be proactive for whatever the world throws at us. But we're overloaded with nutritional information, leaving us with more questions than answers. Does that even work? Can I trust it? Will that work for me and my goals? How do you know what your body uniquely needs unless you ask it? For the truth seekers, the change makers, and the goal getters, the answers are inside you. Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition and performance platform that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. Inside Tracker's patented system will transform your body's data into knowledge, insights, and a customized action plan of science-backed recommendations. Are you ready to take control of your health and wellness journey? Discover your body's potential for a longer, healthier life with Inside Tracker. Welcome, Max, and thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're both 40, both live in Bend, Oregon, uh, but we have some very different backgrounds to our running and the kind of things we've done in the years, but certainly a lot of overlap as well. And I think the first time I met you was 2009 when I, I moved to the US uh, in Bend, and uh, I was doing one of your weekly uh, speed sessions with the Foot Zone Running Club. And it's like, wow, this is so cool. There's this elite guy who's just helping people for free. So that's the first time I ever got any kind of contact with you. And uh, and obviously, you're still doing that stuff now. So uh, yeah. Yeah, we will go into that kind of thing. Uh, and we'll go into all the things that you've done within your running career. But uh, if we start off historically, let's go back to, uh, to when you were at college at Cornell. So I believe back then you were a 3,000 steeplechaser, 3,000 meter steeplechaser as a, as a focus. So were you on a scholarship for that specifically back then? Well, no, like the way that, um, cause I went to Cornell. Um, so Ivy league doesn't do Scott like athletic scholarships. And so when I came in there, I was more of a grant based need program. Um, and that's basically how I afforded college. Um, just cause we were pretty poor, didn't have a lot of money and, um, but I, you know, had the good grades. I did all the um, extracurricular stuff. And then I was a runner. So I kind of got recruited to run. But that comes along with the caveat of not being able to get an athletic scholarship for uh, for Ivy League. So um, but, you know, on the uh, the flip side of that is that as you progress through um, through your college and if you start to do better, like I did, um, you can actually get scholarships for like a certain team. Like, so I had, by the time I was a senior, 
um, I had pretty much everything paid for. Um, and a lot of it was based on scholarships for like academic scholarships for the track team. Um, so things like that. So they would go to an athlete who was doing well in school still. Um, and so I got uh, some of those and stuff like that. So, uh, and did you do multiple distances back then? Were you still trying to find well, the thing that you wanted to do? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it was pretty, like, I came in there and cross country was my big thing. That's that's always been my first love. Um, that's what I've always really liked to do and what I've excelled at. So cross country was kind of it. Um, obviously, I did indoor and outdoor track too. And my my freshman year, I was trying to do the 5K. Um, and then I, I didn't have a ton of success in that on the track. Um, sophomore year kind of did that as well. But then, um, I think my sophomore year, um, I think it was, I think my sophomore year, I did like one or two steeplechases, just kind of dabbled in it. And then it was my junior year actually, where it really kind of came, like I came out and I, uh, we did a trip to Southern California over spring break every year. And so I, you know, that first meet, uh, that was like the first meet of the year I did steeplechase and I got a provisional NCAA qualifier, um, at that meet. And for me at that point, like that was pretty unexpected. Like I hadn't, um, put forward any times or any performances that would indicate that I should be considering the NCAA championship meet. Um, and so the fact that I hit a provisional time on that first meet, I was like, wow, okay, steeplechase is where it's at. This is where I'm going to focus. And so for the next two years, I basically did steeplechase. Um, and I just didn't have like, I was trying to do the 5k in track, but I just, I don't know. It just didn't, didn't suit me. Didn't do very well in it. And that kind of continued on throughout the rest of my track career, actually, as I never really had uh, a good 5k on the track. So and just to put that in context, what is your 5K PR then? Um, 13.54 is my 5K PR. But, you know, it's like put that in context with what I was running at the time in Steeplechase, which was about 8.40. And probably what I should have done in the 5K was probably a 13.30 or 13.40. Um, and I just never got close to that. So. I mean, these numbers just blow my mind. I'm sure most people listening to it, they're still just so unachievable, but also within the context, obviously, of being a, a top level athlete or being uh, able to get to the Olympics, then, uh, you know, you've got to be looking at 13 minutes now for, for the 5K. So yeah. um, were you thinking at that point of being a, a career runner or just that it was a big part of your life, but that you'd have to have a job as well? Oh, definitely that I have to have a job. I mean, I went to college with the express content that I was, I was going to be like, I was going for academics and then, which is why I went to Cornell. Um, and why my, the other schools that I was also looking at were all about academics. I wasn't even sure I was going to run in college and then kind of got recruited for it. So ended up running and it ended up being the best decision I could have made. But it, like, I was still going for the schooling, um, you know, with the intent that I would get a job afterwards. Um, and I did, and I got out and I, I got a, you know, I got a great job as an intern during school. And then like, uh, I, I got a job doing that with, with, that I was an intern doing, um, right after college. So it all worked out. Um, it was great and had that job for a while until I turned pro and retired from that. But, um, yeah. And these days, do you um, do anything other than running related stuff or, or do you still have uh, any other? I know you used to work at uh, at a local lab, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Bend Research at the time. Now it's been sold to Lonza. Um, but yeah, it was pharmaceutical research. But no, I don't. I haven't done any of that for about 10 years. Kind of feel pretty far out of it. My wife still works there, so I still hear about it all the time. 
um, and run into people that I used to work with in town and stuff. But um, no, I haven't been doing that for a while. Everything that I do now is all running related, um, which is kind of fun. It's a, it was a really, it's been a really fun way to kind of um, just form my career, um, my career path and stuff is just kind of uh, focus it all around running. Um, and then just do different things in that, in that running hemisphere for like, you know, working in a running store, being a footwear buyer there or setting up doing running camps or coaching, um, or race directing, all of that sort of stuff. So, and we will touch on all of those later. I, I'm just going to stick a little bit more with, with some of the things probably from back when you were uh, at college, because I think it's uncommon to see people be a really excellent collegiate athlete and then keep going almost 20 years later and still being, you know, maybe you're not the quickest you've ever been, but you're very, very close to it now. I mean, you can still get in the Olympic trials, things like that. I mean, so it's, what do you think has allowed you to still keep going strong uh, through that amount of time when a lot of other people burn out? Yeah. So uh, the biggest key to that was my decision when I started running again after college. So after college, like I was pretty burnt out. I was kind of injured my senior year of track and I had been pushing, pushing, pushing for four years of running really, really hard along with all the schoolwork. So when I got done with that senior season, I was, I was done. I was toast. I didn't want to, I didn't want to run. I wanted to take some time off and I just wasn't quite sure that I wanted to continue on. And so I didn't, I stopped for about, about a year um, or so. I just stopped running completely. Um, I was doing other stuff outdoors, but then kind of started to dabble in like adventure racing um, and then uh, kind of missed the competition side of things. So then I started to get into off-road triathlons. Then I started to miss the competition of just running and to see what I could do. And that's when, that's the point where I really got back into running um, in about 2004. So about uh, two years after college, two and a half, three years after college. Um, and at that point I made like the very conscious decision of, okay, at this point, like I'm going to start running again, but I'm only going to do it as long as it's fun. And I kind of made that pact with myself. And, um, so I've always, uh, I've always made sure that it's fun for me. And that's a really big part of running for me now is to have fun with it. Um, which is also part of the reason, like you see me doing, you know, all sorts of stuff like obstacle racing or trail racing or mountain racing or jumping back on the roads from time to time, things like that. Cause I just want to keep it fun. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just taking it back to what I decided to do back in 2004 when I started running again and is just to make sure that it's always fun. And that's, I think the key reason why I've always been able to, or why I've kept it going so long and I'm still running the way I am. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I guess that would probably be part of your answer there. And so why do you think collegiate programs, maybe <laughs> this is going to sound a bit lame maybe, but they're not focused enough on fun. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure for people to get on the team. And I've spoken to a lot of collegiate athletes who maybe say, well, they just kind of work as hard as possible. And if one of us breaks, there's someone else to take their place. Do you think that there's a a fair degree of that at the collegiate level that sometimes maybe harms people's post-collegiate running careers? Yes. I mean, I, I, and, and I don't say that in like, in, I don't know, it doesn't apply to all coaches or all programs, but for the most part, that's a lot of the culture in the NCAA system. I feel like is for a coach to develop an athlete to reach their potential and to reach their potential, they have to push them kind of to that limit. I think what 
confounds that a lot is the 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 fact that you have a ton of other stress in your life. You're figuring things out because you're in college, you're away from your parents for the first time, probably. Um, you've got schoolwork, and so that's competitive in its nature generally. Um, and then you know you're worried about what's going to happen after college. You and you know you do that for four years, and then all of a sudden you get pushed out into the real world. I think there's a lot of confounding factors there as far as the amount of stress and stuff. So that probably plays into it a lot as well. Um, Cause I mean, you know, you've got, you've got programs where they focus on kind of the fun of it, but they also focus on good performance too. And there's no reason why you can't have both. Um, but I do sometimes feel like some of the coaches are putting too much of a focus on not having, you know, not developing an athlete for long-term health, but they're just trying to get it out of them in four years and say, oh, the heck with that afterwards. But if you're an, if you're a college athlete, I do think that there, there's a way that you can both focus in college, reach your potential, but also like continue on after, after that as well. So. And so what are some of the core principles that you took away from that and, and what things have you maybe changed from that? And I'm guessing part of that at least would be related to recovery. From like the college days and stuff? Yeah, so from college days, so things that you learned from that and then things that you've kind of refined and improved upon for, for the way you do things now. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I took away from it is just like the hard work, that mentality of, of pushing yourself to that limit. Um, and my coach did a really good job of getting this out of me and really teaching me kind of like what what I had inside of me wasn't everything that I was giving. And so I could always push a little bit further, a little bit harder and doing some incredibly insane workouts um, just to push my body and stuff and get more out of myself and become a better athlete. Um, that was the, one of the biggest things with college. Um, I, you know, the recovery side of things you mentioned, it's like, yeah, I don't know that we really like learned anything about recovery because <laughs> you know you're a college athlete you're a kid you don't have to take that time to recover i mean there there's lessons in there and i'm sure you know we we did take easy days and rest days and stuff but it was always usually about learning how to push yourself further and at that point in life i think that's what it's about i think it's about trying to push yourself to that limit and then going over it finding finding a way to get over it obviously without getting hurt um, and that's what's, what happens to so many people is they do get hurt and they do get injured. And, you know, I wasn't without my injuries in college, but for the most part, I was pretty rock solid. And for that, I consider myself lucky too. Um, you know, a lot of that recovery side of things, I think comes as you get wiser and older and you kind of, you, you start to, you start to get into some of those more injury things and you're kind of at that injury limit and re where recovery becomes more important. Like for now, like, you know, now, for example, um, the injury, the, that recovery side of things is really, really important. And so learning like just the last couple of years, I'm, I'm really like kind of not, I wouldn't say struggling, but I would say refining that fine balance between, pushing myself to where I used to be able to get to, but then having to take more recovery time. And that's, I mean, that, I don't know about you, but like, that's hard for me to accept. Um, and that's like one of those things that's like, I don't know. I like, I want to push myself really hard because I want to get better, but I'm at reaching that point where, yeah, better might just be like holding steady at this point, you know? And, and I, I totally get what you're saying there. And I have to admit that seeing you, 
rehabbing injuries and then coming back. So I, I see you in recharge gym locally here and, uh, you know, coming back from an injury and, and you'll say, oh yeah, I can't really do much at the moment. And then a month later you go and win a race and it's super fast and it seems as quick as you've ever been. And I have to admit that I do personally find very motivating because we're almost exactly the same age. Um, obviously age does come into it, particularly from how injuries are likely to pop up in recovery. But just knowing that if you do the right stuff and, and you're, you're, commitment to hard work there is certainly something very obvious when you're rehabbing an injury as well that you're doing all these different exercises you are in the gym putting in the time not just to, to rest and let it recovery recover but to do everything you can and then seeing that pay off i think that's uh, something that you're talking about there from from the hard work ethic that you got from from college days and onwards and i'm sure that applies to all elements of life not just the running side of it but uh, i have to admit it's difficult to accept as people get older that you've got to change your training but I think you're one person who certainly shows that you don't have to sacrifice the ability to be at your best. You just have to change how you do things. So I suppose related to that, what what have you changed? I mean, is your mileage significantly different from where it was maybe in you know, the age of 30? Um, and do you approach things differently? Are you extra cautious at the first hint of a little niggle? Well, uh, no, I, so I'm kind of dumb like that. You know, I mean, like you, you made me sound really good that I'm like, yeah, it always looks good in the gym. Trust me. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm doing all these things right. And I know what I, you know, I know when to take time off and everything, but I really don't, I really struggle with that of like, I feel like I push through things now way more than I probably should. Whereas I used to be able to get, get away with it. And now I'm just like, yeah, I used to be able to do it. I can still do it. And then I, all of a sudden, like something is like creeps up on me and I'm kind of hurt may not be too serious, but I'm like thinking back on it as like, oh yeah, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done it that way. Um, but I'm, so, I mean, I, I, it's hard to learn in reverse that, that mentality of things. And so I'm trying to learn and trying to pick it up to where I get better at, at picking those things up of like, okay, this thing hurts right now. This isn't going to turn into something big and I can push through it. Like that used to be my mentality for a lot of things, but now it's like, yeah, this thing hurts. I better take it easy today um, or I better cross train today. And that's what I'm trying to get better at. Um, and that's what's kind of such a struggle. Um, and so like things do look a little different now. Like my workouts, like I used to be able to do one every other day. Um, and that was probably up until about 34, 35, maybe a little younger. And now it's like I got to put two, two rest days or two recovery days in between those workouts um, before I do another hard one. Um, my, my mileage, overall mileage, I used to be able to get up to 120 and I still like, I want to be able to do that. And it's, it's there mentally, but physically I can't. Um, and so I've been, um, about probably 80 to 90 miles a week right now. Um, kind of when I'm, when I'm fittest and I'll put some other stuff in there, like some biking, um, or some, some elliptigo stuff in there or skiing, for example, things like that, just to supplement. So I'm out there about the same amount of time, but like my mileage, my pounding mileage of the running isn't quite as high as it, it used to be. And I, I just can't seem to get it back up to where, you know, over a hundred. I just, I can't because I, my body starts to break down um, and I start to feel it. So, Well, one of the things you mentioned there was about being able to get away with stuff. Uh, and I think that is probably the, the perfect phrase because we, we can get away with suboptimal ways of training when we're younger. And then uh, you have to be, get smarter and smarter to make, keep making it sustainable. But uh, it's so much easier to do that in hindsight. After you've just picked up an injury and go, yeah, I shouldn't have done that workout or I should have backed off that week. 
Um, but it's still possible, even on that lower amount of miles, you're talking about doing kind of three quarters of the running mileage to still be incredibly fit. And I think that's a, a good takeaway for people, especially if they've been training for a number of years. They've uh, got to high levels in the past, and that's a relative term, but you know they've, they've peaked and had Boston qualifiers or similar things like that, but that you don't have to always hit that maximum. And in fact, maybe even at the time, that maximum wasn't the most optimum way of training. Maybe they just got away with it to some degree. So do you feel like you can still compete at the best level in ultra running even with the uh, the times getting quicker these days um yeah yes and no i mean i can i can certainly compete to the level that i have currently been at but like you just said like the times getting faster and stuff i'm getting to where there are there are more guys out there who are running faster and that means i need to improve as well and that time is quickly drawing to a close i am no longer able to really improve on my times um, that I used to that I used to be able to run but I can still run up to those and I feel like I haven't lost much um, which is you know it's a big key in being able to still compete on at that at that level um, one of the concepts that I always used to kind of think about when I was training uh, is you know you make those you make those gradual little leaps going up to get better and stuff in your performance. And every time you make one of those little leaps, it took a really big, uh, like a really big effort. Like say, you know, just for example, just and throw something out there uh, to go from like a 220 marathon to a 218 marathon. That's a pretty big jump by two minutes. It took running consistently, like from a hundred miles a week to 110 miles a week consistently. Like those types of like performance jumps take that kind of training jump Whereas like, you know, you could, you could always get back up to that 218 or that performance level, even though you were lower on your mileage after that, you kind of always can get back to that level. And so always getting back to the level that you've been in in the past is a lot easier than trying to make new gains in your performance where you've never been before. If, I mean, if that makes any sense. Oh, a hundred percent. No, okay. it, it's, it's kind of that muscle memory and just the body getting to a certain level once. And, and this again applies with uh, everything in life, not just physical stuff as well. That once you can get to a certain level, it's much easier to get to there, but to get the incremental gains from there much, much harder. So yeah. I suppose a, a, a takeaway for people there is just how it's important that you do challenge yourself and push yourself uh, with your running when you are younger so that you can get to high le- levels so that then even if it's harder to push on from that at least you've already got a higher um plateau that you can reach so if you've been able to do what is your pr like 214 i think in a marathon yeah yeah so if you've been able to do a 214 then in the future doing a 218 is much more manageable while if 218 had been the best you'd ever done getting to that in your 40s is going to be significantly harder so exactly. uh, i think that, that that's a kind of universal rule that if you get to one level once it's much easier to get back to there but to get beyond it is, is much harder yeah no that's a, that's yeah good good summation i didn't do a very good <laughs> job summing that up but you did yeah. well given all, all the different things you've done i do want to talk about all of them because you're one of the most um flexible and and well-rounded athletes i think uh, I, I can think of in the world really just the different things you've been able to excel at um and just a one quick question there is how many different sports and or events have you been world champion at because it's at least about four isn't it well, so the world mountain running champion 2011 yeah yep. um 100k road world champion 2014 yeah 
um, the Warrior Dash World Champion twice for obstacle racing. Yeah, this is where you get a little more iffy. I do consider those first two <laughs> to be like legitimate world championships. The next ones get a little iffy. You're like, well, was it really a world championship? But that's what they called it. So yeah, uh, there was the Warrior Dash one um, for two years in a row. And then there's Xterra Trail Run World Championships, which I think it was four or five years, four maybe, something like that. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple in there. But I definitely like the World Mountain Running one and the World 100K are the two that I consider to be like, I, they're like real, like true world championships. And um, I'm most proud of those. I think that's fair. But I think it's also good to point out that even if the other ones are less competitive or they're not the only thing in that sport um they're still showing a a lot of variety in what you've been able to achieve so sure given that you've done all of that do you think that's been a big part of of how you've been able to stay both interested in the sport and also uh competitive in it because you don't just do one thing you don't just road run and hammer your body that way you do a whole load of things yeah i mean absolutely i mean that goes back to that having fun and stuff and so I've always found like I've been able to motivate myself as long as I change things up and keep it interesting. And so that's what I've always been like cycling through different events and dis- disciplines for is just to keep it interesting. So I stay motivated. There's no way that I would still be running if I just stuck to steeplechase or if I just stuck to the marathon. Um, I know guys can do that and um, more power to them. That's awesome. But there is no way that I could do that. I have to jump around. It keeps me more mo- motivated. And I do think that I got more out of myself doing it, doing it that way than I would have if I really kind of stuck with it. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of goes back to that. But, you know, like you mentioned, like the flexibility of doing a lot of different things. I think that kind of relies back on like just the running background of like what you mentioned of um, pushing everything to the limit, getting the most out of yourself when you're younger. You kind of have this base and this foundation that you can always kind of rely on no matter what discipline or what event you're doing and and so then like say i switch over to mountain running it takes you know i get my doors blown off at first but i can always rely back on that base of running and then it takes just some of that um some of the um uh, the specific training to get better at it to do it better so and i think what, what we're highlighting there is the tra- the potential trade-offs and benefits of, of being a specialist versus a generalist. And so often this is talked about in terms of kids growing up and playing multiple sports rather than just doing one thing and then either burning out or not being as well-rounded in terms of their muscular development and other things. Mm-hmm. But uh, even if we think of the difference between doing triathlon and mountain running and road running and track running and jumping over steeple chase uh, hurdles – all of that is is a much broader spectrum of both skills and physical uh, requirements than if you just done flat running, for example. So I think it, it does highlight how the, the benefit of that. And I, I'd say a lot of the top level people in in most sports have had uh, a lot of a more general start. But then there's examples like Tiger Woods, who started playing golf at three or four, and that's all he's ever done, and becomes the best in the world. But uh, it does seem like that more generalist side to things is a more common thing and uh and certainly for kids would you recommend that they even if they're into one thing would you still encourage them including your own kids to do lots of different stuff just for the sake of it really yeah definitely uh i see that a lot with like kids running or kids in swimming or something like that of you know there's 
there's always going to be outliers who have like who are in the Olympics that started when they were three three years old and they've been doing it ever since then and they're like world the the best in the world and it's like yeah that's great and that's really awesome that they started back then but there were also a hundred other kids that did the exact same thing that no longer even do the sport and so um, there's there's a trade off there and there's always that outlier that kind of shows or the bucks the trend and can make it all the way through and is the best in the world but the other people who are the best in the world the other you know ten athletes who are right around them or so probably did not start that way um, and probably had a much broader background. And so I like, you know, I see some kids who, you know, just do one sport um, and generally they're not doing it in high school or they find like, you know, they just are kind of done with it and they stop doing it altogether um, and then they don't do it at all. And so I think, I think varying it up and doing a couple of different sports is always going to be more beneficial um, in the long run than just sticking with one. Um, but, you know, you're going to have other people who are going to feel differently too. So, And so at high school, did you play other sports as well or were you very focused on running at that time? Um, I was pretty focused on running, um, but like every kid, I was doing a lot of different stuff. Um, I did swim for a year, uh, my senior year of high school and during the winter just to get some different training in. Um, but, you know, I was also like a high school athlete that wasn't super focused. I didn't have the best high school coach to say, this is what I should be doing. Um, I ran cross country, I ran track, but I took the winters off. I basically took the summers off. Um, and so I wasn't doing a ton of stuff in between. Um, and so that kind of gave me that break. And then I was, you know, I was always, I was always biking. I was always hiking and doing other stuff. Um, you know, stuff like that, just kind of getting out. I just didn't do any other sports per se. And so even if you weren't thinking of it formally as being part of a team and everything, that, that's multiple different things you're doing at that point to keep it interesting. And yeah. I'm sure you're doing it purely based on what was fun as well as what would to some degree help your running. But uh, would you say that that fun element is something where even for the athletes who reach the top of the sport, if we have two opposite ones, one who's done just that sport, 100% committed, nothing else, and someone who's maybe done other things first – would you argue from your experiences that maybe you were able to enjoy the moment a bit more because of your thinking about things and doing stuff in the direction of, of what was enjoyable rather than just because you felt you had to? So I suppose if that's a broad question, but what I'm trying to say is, do you think, say, when you won the 100K World Championships, that on the day you could maybe enjoy it more because of this focus on trying to enjoy the sport and that you're in it for a good reason rather than you're in it just because that's what you're good at and it's all about just winning stuff uh, yeah I don't I mean I don't know like I think that would be a very individual uh, individual question um, or individual feeling like on mm -hmm. that day you know how is one person going to feel over another one and it, it like I think that all comes down to the type of athlete you are um and for me, like, like enjoying that side of things and not, you know, not crossing the finish line and looking at all the, the bad things or the, the negative things that could have like that went wrong rather than I'm like looking at like the positive side of things. And so I'm always trying to look at that side, being more positive, um, thinking about what I did right instead of what I did wrong. I mean, obviously, there's every ultra I've ever done. I've always learned something from um, looking at those those things that went wrong. But I try to put that in a positive light and then say, okay, this went wrong, but shoot, the next time I get it right, it's going to go a lot better. So it's almost like this mentality um, 
that different athletes have. And that all comes down to individual. I mean, you'll see some athletes who will, uh, I don't know, they'll lose a race and they'll be really angry with themselves and really upset. Um, and that is a very different type of athlete than maybe I am who I lose a race or I get, I blow up and it's like, well, let's just have fun with this now. And I'm going to like, you know, graze through the aid stations in this ultra because I'm just walking at this point rather than really beating myself up and being mad at myself. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of like two different mentalities and there's everything in between. There's this whole spectrum in between too. So. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think what you're describing there is the growth mentality versus the fixed mindset basically of that you can have a bad race, but you can come away from it learning and trying to improve or you can have the fixed mindset of going into it saying, I am a good runner, so I will do well. And if I don't do well, then that is bad rather than what can you learn from it. Right. And I think one that's probably a big key part to it, again, why you've been able to do so many different things. And for so long is that you're able to learn from one experience and then translate that into other ones rather than at the point maybe where you've won several races in a row and then you come second, you say, oh, I'm no longer me. I'm no longer good. And all motivation disappears. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. You just said it better. <laughs> I, I just read a book about that. So that was very much on my mind, in my mind anyway. <laughs> and now a word from this episode's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Take advantage of Inside Tracker's best deal of the year and take control of your health and wellness with $200 off Ultimate Plan, their most comprehensive package. Use code PODIUM at insidetracker.com. Uh, I suppose it, it, this is a good kind of segue into the whole concept of the Olympic trials and the Olympics, because within the sport of running, there's no doubt that that is the absolute pinnacle. Um, ultra running obviously doesn't have anything in there unless you count the 50k uh, speed walk. Um, but uh, you've done the Olympic trials for the steeplechase and the marathon. Uh, is it a couple of times for each of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, twice for the steeple, twice for the marathon. Yeah. And how much was that a big motivation for you? Because it is so much bigger than anything else. That, but also I'm guessing you know that in both cases it's it's a little bit more of a long shot. You weren't going in there with the fastest time. So it's not like it's a get on the team or it's absolute failure. It's more about doing as well as you can. So did, did that provide a big motivation to you? Did the Olympics themselves growing up provide a big motivation? Yeah, I mean, huge. Like that's, you know, like every other kid growing up watching the Olympics, it's like, oh, I got to, I want to get there. I want to get as high as I possibly can. And that is the pinnacle. And so when you attach the Olympic name to something like the Olympic trials, that becomes like that pinnacle. Um, you know, and like you said, like I wasn't in a position at the time to be making an Olympic team. Um, but the Olympic trials was that, but, but you never know. I mean, you, you were quick enough that it was not impossible. Uh, yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. It wasn't impossible, but it was, a, it would have been a reach. Um, it would have been huge PRs, um, and performance gains in both of those. And so I didn't go in thinking that I was going to be making a team, but I did go in thinking that I am going to do um, the best that I possibly can um, at each of these trials, because that's what you want to do. That's your goal in, in even making it there. Um, and so, yeah, in making, I mean, that, that was my key motivation for a lot of those seasons of track and for road running was to make the Olympic trials. Um, and, you know, that's motivating for any runner because that is that pinnacle. Um, and if it's not the Olympics, because that's three people, then it becomes the Olympic trials and that becomes your pinnacle race. That's the championship race. That's the big one for every four years. And kind of like you throw all your eggs in that basket um, every four years. And I find this fascinating because being both a Brit and an American now, 
um, the UK way of doing things is they pick more subjectively the top three people. And so they'll bear in mind past um, medals and, and who's got the fastest PR and stuff like that and who they think will do the best allowing for development of those athletes for the future to do well as well. Right. While in the US, it's like you just have a race, you see who the three quickest people are and that's it. So it does definitely give that additional kudos to to that being the olympics for most people i'm sure to some degree that must have been the case for you as well that's like going to the olympics um that that is the the closest most of those you know if you've got 400 athletes and six of them are going from the men and the women um in total then most of them that is the closest they get yeah so did did it have that kind of feeling of just everyone being at their peak and, and just with the olympic word attached to it giving that extra special level of uh, attention yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, we do have like the championships every year, um, but nothing, th- there is nothing else quite like the Olympic trials for us. Um, and it is that because it's every four years and it is that huge pinnacle um, that puts a, a lot of extra pressure on all of the athletes to be in the best shape that they've ever been in and healthy when they get there. And doing that on one day at one time, like puts an enormous amount of pressure on you. But if you want to make the Olympics and want to do well at the Olympics, then you've also got to be able to perform that day at that specific time as well. And so it gets athletes ready to do that. Um, I feel like, especially those top, you know, the top three or picking the team, it puts the best three on that team and um, nothing against the, the GB way. Like you guys, you know, picking the top three athletes, there's definitely um, advantages to doing it that way as well. So and I think that the Kenyan and Ethiopian teams are that same way where they try and pick the best three, which gets very difficult if you've got to pick between the world record holder, the London winner, the Berlin winner or something. And it's like, which ones do you not put in when they're all to such a high level? And yet they always seem to pick teams that don't seem to get as many medals as they should in the marathon in particular. I know. But yeah. uh, the marathon is definitely, I think, a more awkward one there because I totally get the idea of the track stuff that uh, right before the Olympics, you have a track meet, the top three go through. With the marathon, though, you're asking people to peak in about February and then again in August. But what happens if you're not particularly healthy or you got ill in February, but you're the world record holder and therefore you don't get in the team? It's I see the for and the against for, for both of those, but uh, totally. at the very least, it makes something pretty exciting for you guys. Yeah, no, yeah. I, You know, the something that I've always really appreciated about our sport is the the objectivity of it um those other sports of like you know watching the gymnastics at the olympics and being judged by a panel of judges on your performance i could never i could never do that i would be so hard for me to say well this person did better than i did um you know and have my performance judged by a third party I just like, I love the way that our sport is, you want to be better, you just run faster. You know, it's like, it is so clear cut. Definitely. Um, I remember thinking in the last Winter Olympics. Yeah, yeah. there there, there was, I think, what's it, ice skating guy. And he was a Russian guy. And he's the best in the world. And he was the only person who could do a quadruple something. Mm -hmm. And so in his head, he was like, well, if I'm the only person who can do the quadruple, I should get the gold. But because of the way they get scored, if he does an imperfect quadruple, it's not as many points as a perfect triple, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, very subjective there compared to uh, to what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's something that I've always appreciated about our sport is, you know, cross-country teams in high school, we deal with this all the time. It's like you get a basketball team and somebody's always upset and mad because somebody else gets on the starting lineup and 
over this other kid who they thought should be better and parents are always upset. Whereas like cross country, you're out there. It's like, yeah, you want on varsity? All you got to do is run faster, you know, and you have to be one of the top seven. So in the last meet that you had, like one of the, like you got to be the top, top seven times. And so it's very clear cut, straightforward. I like that. So. So that's quite a good segue, I think, into ultra running, because although it's still the same thing of the quickest person wins, there's more things that go into it than just being the fittest person. While at the shorter distances, that's going to be a a larger proportion of success. So uh, you've had huge success, particularly up to the 100k distance. I mean, being world champion uh, and winning so many other distances, uh, 50 miles and, and 50k and similar. So. I know you've done 200 milers. Uh, I was there for both of them. Um, and uh, this oh. the only time I've ever beaten you in, I think, 50 plus races was one of those 100 milers. So yeah. that to me is is my one thing. But <clears throat> I suppose it, it highlights really there that it is just some extra stuff there that, I mean, you, it's the one thing that you've been amazing at, but not at the same level quite as you've done with other ultra running. I mean, you still came fourth at Western States with a super fast time, but you're in the lead for a lot of it. And obviously your aim was to win and, and to be comparable with all the other things you've done. I'm sure, you know, the first place was, it was the main thing on your mind there. Uh, and then Leadville, again, you were on course record pace for 70 plus miles uh, and then had uh, had stomach issues, I believe. So what, what appeals there about the long stuff and, is that kind of a little bit of a monkey on your back to some degree of the, the one thing that has gone well, but not quite as well as the other. And I'm, don't, I'm not trying to be a dick here. <laughs> it may come across that way for anyone listening. I'm just, try, just trying to say, this is the one thing that you're amazing at, but not quite the, achieve the things that we would expect of you yet. No, we can, we can clearly say that I have not figured out that distance. Yet. <laughs> no, like, and even going down, I still don't feel like I feel comfortable at 50 K like, I feel like I can kind of nail a 50K whenever I need to. But I still don't feel comfortable even with a 50-miler still. Um, and it's just because there are, like, I can, be in, I can be fit, I can be in shape, but I just, on that day, I do not know what's going to happen. Um, and it's just because there are so many different things that go into it. And, um, you know, going up further than a 50-mile, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, anything can happen, especially, you know, 100-mile scares the heck out of me. I mean, I don't know how you do one like every other month almost and get away. With- that was one year oh, okay. <laughs> and that was 2013. I think uh, it still horrifies me to the oh. idea of doing that again. <laughs> but, I mean, but you pretty much nail like every hundred mile that you run. I mean, just just because you have it dialed in so well. Um, and that's always impressed me about some of you guys who can do those hundred milers um, and pretty much nail every single one. Um, there's guys out there who have run fast ones who have won big ones but can't still can't nail every single one. Um, and, but you guys, uh, that kind of nail them all, like that's impressive because I feel like so much can go wrong in one of those. And, you know, like you said, like my Western States one, like, I feel like that one went pretty well, not great, but pretty well. Um, just, I was able to hang on for fourth, um, and still run a pretty fast time, but then, you know, jump a year and a half later to Leadville and I'm running along feeling great. And all of a sudden, boom, i I blow up and it wasn't stomach. It was actually my like hips and everything kind of locked up and wouldn't allow me to run. And I still, I don't know why, um, it was something musculature in there. Uh, but you know, obviously, you know, went too fast, went out too hard. Um, the altitude got to me, um, and just was not able to finish that one out, um, other than to walk it in for the last 20 miles. So, 
do, do you think there's something to do with the level of risk being taken there that in a shorter distance race, it's easier to dial in effort level. So let's say up to the marathon, you can know what it feels like to, to do marathon effort in your training runs. You can dial all that in. You can have lots of other marathons as practice over the years. So you can have a much better expectation on race day of how to do it. But then there's just more unknowns maybe uh, when we're looking at the, uh, the, the 100 mile distance in particular, that it makes it harder to know if you're being too risky maybe in the early stages because if it's got to last all day, then that's an easy effort, but how easy? You know, 30 yeah. seconds a mile different will still be easy. Right. Uh, and I remember, you know, seeing the splits you were doing ahead of me at Leadville that day and, and being on course record pace. And particularly there's one section from, I think, mile 60 to 75 or something where I had pushed and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be catching him now. And you put another 10 minutes on me and I'm like, oh, crap. That's just, <laughs> I, I was very demoralized at that moment. But it's, it's just knowing those fine margins of where the risk can be taken without having as much context from lots of other similar experiences so do, do you feel from those two that you've been able to learn a little bit more about that and uh, and do you think that that's just a, a separate skill almost to purely just the physical training and, and fitness yeah yeah no i think you're right i mean it's you, you the more experience you have like each of the hundred milers that i've done i've definitely learned a lot um but you can do, say, you're running a, I don't know, if you're running a 10K on the road or whatever, you can do how many of those a year? You can do as many as you want, really. You can learn over the course of a year quite rapidly. Whereas a 100 miler, what can you do? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, but probably not a year. So you have fewer opportunities to learn. You also can't train up to a 100 miler, so you can't figure out that sort of stuff until you actually get into a race, whereas like a 10K or something, you can train up to that distance. You can do tempo runs and workouts and kind of figure out those paces and stuff. And so like you said, like you can learn a lot more about yourself doing a shorter distance race in training than you can at a hundred miler. And you just don't have as many opportunities to learn. And I think if I jumped back in and did more hundred milers, um, probably a little easier than really kind of putting all my eggs in that basket and really pushing it. I could learn a little bit more, a little bit quicker, um, but man, 100 miles scares the crap out of me, and I don't really want to do very many of those. <laughs> <laughs> it, it scares me, but also one of the nice things is that you know you don't have to go off hard. If you're in a 5K, you've got to get it right within the first minute. If you're in a long race, you can ease into it in those first few miles. If you're a little bit too fast, a little bit too slow, not a big deal. If you're way too fast, but you know it's pretty obvious if you're running a 5K at the start of a 100-miler that it's not going to work very well. But uh, does it appeal to you, especially as we mentioned about how um, with other things you've achieved that you know maybe you won't improve your marathon time or or similar but but you can still improve this in particular this is the one area where age is is a benefit and all the experience you have including those 200 milers allows you to keep getting significantly better probably for for quite a while so does that appeal and does that make you want to do more 100 milers even if it's just say one every couple of years yeah, it does. And, you know, finally this year is the first year since Leadville, I think, that I've kind of come around to that realization of like, yeah, I kind of feel like maybe I want to do another one. And, and part of the reason I've, I've been kind of injured the last two years um, with plantar fasciitis. And so I never had my mileage up to a point where I felt even comfortable thinking about it until this year. And this year I was training really well. Um, running mileage was high. I felt like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe like I'm getting, I'm coming around to possibly doing another hundred miler again. 
Um, and there, it's funny, but that hundred mile distance, as much as it scares me, there are only a couple that I really want to do as far as races go. Um, now I'm looking at a lot more of that adventure side of running and I'm enjoying the bigger adventures. And so there's a lot more kind of hundred mile routes that I would rather do on my own out in the wilderness rather than racing them. Um, and so like, you know, I do want to go back to Western States again, that's probably one of the few, maybe the only hundred miler that I want to do. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I've, I've started to think about it again. So. That's, that's what I expect. I always ask you this every time I bump into you in the gym. It's like, oh, you can do a hundred miler this year, but, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, trying to nail you down to, to do another, I'm not surprised it's Western States, given that you saw how close you were to, to even a course record that day. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it, this idea of adventure, I think is a, a key part of it. And, and I certainly want to talk about some of the other adventurous stuff you've done. Uh, and I think the most recent one you had was flying to uh, a set of islands in the middle of the Atlantic for what was it? The golden trail series finale. Yeah. Uh, and what was the name of those islands again? Uh, the Azores. Azores, yeah. Yep. So, what was that exactly, and and uh, how did pe- how did people qualify? Did they have to do other Golden Trail Series events, or was it different this year because of COVID? It was different this year. So, usually, like you know, we'll have we have a Golden Trail Series, which is a series of um, five different races all around the world. Most of them are in Europe, and then we have Pikes Peak over here in the U.S. Um, so, from those races, usually, like you would the top 10 people, uh, from those, from that series would get to go to the championships. Um, and so the, you have the golden trail championships each year for the past two years anyway. Um, and this year with COVID, obviously there were no races in Europe. There's no golden trail series, no way to qualify. So what they did was they kind of changed it up a little bit. There were some races that still happened in Europe. So some of those guys, um, were able to race into this championship, whereas us over here, we didn't have very many races. We didn't know what was going to happen. And so um, they, we actually put together a series of Strava segments to qualify. So we had a Strava segment, say, down in Lake Tahoe um, that went from Truckee up to the top of Castle Peak. Um, and the fastest man and woman on that course would qualify for this Golden Trail Championships over in the Azores. Um, and so there were five of those in the U.S. this year. Um, around the U.S. And so there were five men, five women that qualified to go from the U.S. uh, to go over there. Um, And then they changed the championship format too because we hadn't been racing at all. They actually changed it from a one-day race to a four-day stage race, which was um, different than it's been in the past and pretty interesting. Um, So we're kind of racing over four days. Well, everybody else was racing hard over four days. I injured my calf on the first day, so I was out. But um, but yeah, it was a really fun format. I, I kind of liked the way that they did it this year, um, with the four day stage race, just to throw a wrench into it and make all these, you know, one day mountain racers have to race a little bit longer over four days and kind of brings uh, a little bit different element to it and maybe favors the runners who are a little stronger or maybe the ultra runners, um, and gives them a little bit of a chance too. Yeah, it looked really cool being able to follow it on Strava and seeing some of the paces people were doing uh, for various segments up those hills just blew my mind as well. And uh, yeah. even when I looked at, at your ones, I had to I couldn't see how you'd done other than the fact that you'd said that you'd uh, injured yourself. But even with the paces, there, I was like, wow, that that's really fast. And then I see how fast the leaders were, and it, it just was amazing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a definitely a cool format there to have people racing in that way. Um, to, to fly there during COVID, though, did, what was that like? And, and what kind of additional protocols did they have 
for the runners maybe before they leave and also on the island itself? Yeah, so um, we had to get a negative COVID test uh, uh, 72 hours within, um, within 72 hours of departure from the U.S. to even get on the flight. So we had to have that going over there. And then once we got there, we had to retest every six days. Um, and so got another test after I got there six days later. And then um, before leaving again, because um, I was there for uh, like 12 or 13 days, um, got another test right before I left to come back home. Um, and then, you know, each of those tests, it takes about, it was taking about 48 hours to get results. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. In the big scheme of things, like it doesn't feel too much different um, as long as you're kind of comfortable with it. There's going to be a lot of people who are not comfortable being in an airplane with other people around right now, um, which is totally fine. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, I was a little bit more comfortable with it. It didn't, um, didn't freak me out too much. But, you know, obviously wearing a mask, taking all the precautions that you need to, having the you know, knowing everybody else on that flight also had a negative COVID test before you um, kind of helps allay any fears too, I think. so. And to put this in context, this is going to come out in December where the numbers are still spiking rapidly across the whole world, including the US. But this race was a couple of months ago. So when was it exactly? Oh, um, it was in um, what day? Uh, the end of October, right at the beginning of November. So October 28th through November 1st. And it was right at that period, it was right on the cusp of everything kind of spiking. And that did make a lot of people kind of nervous because right when um, all the Europeans, for example, they were getting home, they were going straight into lockdown. Um, and so um, there were at that time, you know, some people like who, well, you know, because it was happening at the moment, a lot of people um, felt like the race probably shouldn't have been taking place. But I mean, I was also like while it was taking place and before that, everything looked fine. Races had been going in Europe um, and everything had been fine. Um, and so it, it would have been really hard to like just shut it down in the middle of the race and probably no reason to either because we'd all had negative COVID tests. No one got it while on the island. Um, and so it, like all the procedures, all the protocols were followed um, and they actually did a really, really good job of just following all of that and impressing upon us to really just really be safe um, and make sure that um, we're not we're not spreading anything around. So um, that all went really great. Um, and then everybody that went home to Europe went straight into lockdown. So they got to have one last race for the year um, and all went great. So. And based on the fact that you are a race director yourself, um, I was going to mention this at the end, but uh, what kind of things are you bearing in mind and, and how uh, are things going to be mitigated and what does it look like? Because the race that you organized, the Bend Marathon and Half, and that's April 2021 is the next one. So this year's one was a virtual one. Um, what, what's that looking like from a race pre uh, race director's perspective? Yeah, I actually saw you just signed up. Thanks, man. Um, I did. I've done every year of it. I know. It's, it's the only race in the world that I've done every event that ever existed of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's keep your streak going. That's the aim. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like honestly, like it is really tough being a race director right now. It's so hard. Um, a lot of people don't understand the position that you're put into as a race director, having to cancel races. Um, and so that's been pretty tough on us, um, just mostly last year. Um, you know, we're trying to work, um, within all the guidelines this year, we want to have a physical race, but know that we may not. 
Um, we're hoping that by April, like things have calmed down enough to where we, we could be back in a state where we could have a physical race um, with social distancing efforts in place. Um, and what we're planning on doing, um, you know, obviously this is a long ways out. So what we're planning on doing is having a physical race and doing it by waves um, and having 10 or 20 person waves going every, every five minutes or so to get the people that want to run it physically there um, and, but making sure that we're distanced. So sending them off every couple of minutes, not having that finish party that we're well known for, um, getting people to, you know, Hey, take your finisher medal and, um, grab, you know, if we've got food there, if we're able to have food, grab your food and head home. Um, there just won't be an after party and stuff, which is super unfortunate, but the way that things are right now, um, if all goes really, really great, maybe we'll have a vaccine by then. Who knows? But I don't know. We'll see. Uh, probably not with everyone having had it, unfortunately. Yeah, but, probably uh, not. I suppose the one other thing this far out thinking about it is, have you been limited with like initial permit discussions with like to a small number of people? Or uh, have they said at this point that that's, that, you know, if it, if it can go on, then as long as you have waves and you can keep those numbers small enough that it's reasonable? Well, like all of our permitting, like the main one that we have to rely on is the city of Bend. And so we've, we've started talking to them, but they're kind of like, yeah, let's just push that off until um, January. Um, right now we're not issuing any permits and we'll see what it looks like at that point um, and decide whether we can issue an event permit or not. So all of that's kind of on hold um, pending, you know, whatever happens with COVID. So I think it's going to come down to um, almost a game time decision sometime around March 1st of like being able to say, yeah, we can have a race or nope, we got to go totally virtual um, and we won't be able to have a race. So um, kind of putting that off as long as we can to figure that stuff out. Um, but but yeah. Um, we think that, uh, I don't know, we don't, we, oh, I don't, there's nothing to think because I can't, <laughs> can't predict the future. Yeah. That can be, be. So I suppose that one other element of that is that I know that these types of events very much need scale to be able to make money. And that also makes them more valuable to the sponsors. So have you found sponsors being either that fewer of them wanting to be involved or not wanting to commit as much money or, or product or, or any other things making it financially more difficult that way? Yeah, well, I've got my um, co-race director, Carrie Strang. She's on that side of things. So I've got to talk to her um, actually today or tomorrow. I've got to talk to her about that stuff, figure that stuff out. But I did just see, so Hydro Flask, um, as you know, Ian is right here in town and they've been a big supporter and big sponsor of us. Um, and they are in for this year. Um, with no hesitation, they are awesome. Um, they like everybody's had some budget issues, especially with marketing and stuff, but, um, they said they're in. So, uh, our biggest supporter is in there. Um, and hopefully we'll get a, get a few other local ones and the community. We just, you know, the main thing for us with sponsors is getting that community buy-in, um, and really creating, a better experience for all of the racers. Um, so that's what we've always tried to do is look at the sponsors from a racer perspective of like, is it adding value to our racers? Um, is there something that this company can bring to make the race better for our participants? Um, and then we look them look at them as a potential sponsor rather than, hey, they got money, let's just have them in here. So. And I suppose that the lesson there for other races or for people thinking about what races may happen is that where a race is well established and has good community connections, it's going to find it easier to, to work things out with local authorities and similar. But uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of variance in the next six months of, of what events can and can't happen. And 
I can't see the massive ones happening realistically, you know, the Boston marathons and London marathons and stuff like that. But yeah. uh, at least the the medium, smaller ones uh, like like your one uh, are much more feasible. Well, maybe. And that's what we got to find out. But like those big ones like Boston and stuff, I was talking to another race director locally uh, the other day about this. But like Boston, they've already um, they've postponed until, postponed, yeah. until the fall. Um, but like last year, for example, they um, they canceled the race. Obviously, um, they tried to postpone, but then they ended up canceling, and they gave everybody their money back um, with full refunds. And it, and um, that is something that is different that a lot of people don't understand with small, like smaller, locally owned uh, races, like our, ourselves. Of like, you know, we don't have that big pot um, to be able to give people their money back. Where like Boston. Um, they, they maybe have a foundation or a trust that they can, they're, they're kind of taking that and, and refunding everybody's money from, um, and they have a big reserve, whereas, you know, some of the local races, um, like ourselves, or maybe it's a local one in your community that's run by a couple of race directors, like those are being hit harder than either the really big ones or the really small, like charity run ones. Um, then because like we are a for-profit uh, race and we're, you know, it's our job. It's, we're trying to make a living off of it. Like so many other race directors are. Um, and so it becomes really tough. Um, and we're put in a really hard position when a lot of people are asking for their money back, especially last year, for example, um, when that comes out of our budget. Um, and, uh, we, we've already like purchased things and stuff like that. And so I don't know, people, I, I always want to impress upon people like this is a lot harder than just canceling a race and then giving all that money back. Uh, a lot of that's gone. So it, it's hitting these types of races a lot harder than it is those big races and stuff. So, And one thing I'd encourage people to do is, is like you want to help small businesses in your local communities that may be suffering with COVID. Um, small races are just like that. So whether it's signing up to the virtual race or something other than that, uh, I think it's a good way to just help keep some elements of your community there so that they last for after COVID too. Yeah, that's what we want to do. We just want to last through this so we can um, start uh, start next year. Well, hopefully this year, 2021, we'll have a race and then, you know, continue that on into the future as well. So uh, remain in business. So. So I wanted to finish off with uh, a few questions related to um, some practical advice for people. So um, first of all, with the fact that you've done adventure racing, you've done obstacle racing and ski racing as well. And that I see on Strava, you know, the last few days you've been getting up in the mountains and skiing as well. Yeah. Um, so how do you find, not, not just from a fun perspective, but how from a fitness perspective do you think that helps? The, the full body element of, of using the upper body more and things like that. Do you think that makes you a better runner and do you think it helps keep you uninjured? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, you know, honestly, like I do go back and forth with the strength element a lot. Like um, I've always been into doing other stuff, like other than just running, like I'll do some strength, do some core work. Um, a few years ago, I started lifting a little bit more intentionally um, at recharge, like you mentioned. And working with a, um, a like a, a strength and conditioning coach, um, and started lifting heavier, like Olympic weights and stuff like that, um, and really kind of felt like there was some benefit to it for a while. And then I kind of got to the point where I was feeling like I was actually creating more issues from it than I was helping. So I was, um, I, I think I was just overdoing things and not letting my body recover. But I, you know, get these little soreness things from lifting. And then I tried to go run and it was impacting my running, for example. Um, and 
things like that. And so then I kind of like with this uh, plantar fasciitis issue that I was having last year, I kind of stopped lifting altogether to see just, just see what would happen and then to focus kind of more on running. And so that's what I've been doing this year. Um, definitely feel it. I feel a little weaker, um, you know, overall, I just don't feel quite as fit right now. So now I'm starting to try to get back into doing some, just some light, some light stuff like core work, um, and things like that, where I, you know, so that's why I mean, I go back and forth on the, on the strength side of things, but I always feel like there is room for some extracurricular strength work, um, in, in your training, like whether it's core work or yoga, um, or like a, a high rep, uh, low weight type situation, something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think like with the obstacle racing and stuff, like you got to build a little bit more into that, um, to be successful at it. But yeah. No, yeah. And obviously part of that as well is the, uh, aging element of it. Once people get beyond about the age of 30, muscle mass will deteriorate, uh, if they're not working on it. So it's not just purely from a, a running fitness, but also just to keep uh, general strength and, and well-being as well, to have some degree of, of strength work. So there's two specific exercises I want to just check to see what you think about them, because they're vital for obstacle racing. But I think they've got a little bit of a help for runners as well, and just general health and well-being and feeling better. And that's chin-ups and pull-ups. Um, because it does work a whole load of different muscles through the back, through the arms, through the core. Um, do you do them? And, and uh, do you find them useful outside of when you actually need to be hanging off stuff in an obstacle race? <laughs> um, well, you know, I don't know. Um, when I was doing obstacle racing, I was specifically putting that in there because you end up doing that a lot. Um, with the strength training I was doing the last couple of years, I was always doing some, um, some pull-ups. And then since I kind of stopped strength training, though, I've stopped doing that. Um, so I don't know. That's a that's a really kind of a tough one. You're right about like it just works so many back muscles and stuff that I could see um, see the benefit to it. Um, and you know, I've always tried to put some core work in there and stuff. And and while that is core work, I don't necessarily always think of it in my mind as core work. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's something I should change and start doing more of. Um, and you know, it's like, I don't know, it's one of those things that I just haven't done in a while, but I, I don't know. I feel like I just said, like, I feel weaker overall than I used to. Um, and a lot of that comes down to all of that stuff that I used to put in that I haven't been recently. So. And even just the psychology there, the fact that you said you feel a little bit weaker, going into a race, you want to feel strong. You want to feel yeah, fast. So yeah. even if you just feel a little bit more athletic, even if it doesn't actually physically help your legs move quicker, um, I would argue there's probably a little bit of psychological benefit to just feeling like uh, more like an athlete, basically. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, just feeling healthier, feeling better about it. I mean, you know, for example, like you take a fall on a trail and if you're stronger, you're going to absorb that fall better than if you're like, you're kind of weak, you kind of tweak something or something. If you're, if you're a little bit, you're not quite strong enough to hold yourself together during that fall. And that's kind of how I'm like feel right now, I guess is like, I take a fall or something and then I feel like, Oh, like something tweaked a little bit. Whereas if I'm like strong and healthy and fit, then I fall and I'm like, ah, get up, dust myself off and keep going. So and, and then moving on to uh, some other elements where uh, you have broader experience because you you kind of got a finger in a pie of every type of, of the running, every element of the running world, whether it's race directing, every type of running related race, adventure racing, even skiing and stuff like that. 
and then you have uh, your own coaching and camps that you do. And I, I believe you've got kids camps as well as adults camps. Yep. So um, how much of your time do you dedicate to that, firstly? Well, um, you know, the first couple of years, it was a lot of time. Um, this year, this year wasn't much time. We couldn't do them this year. Um, but usually, um, it's a fair amount of time to get ready for the camps and everything and to organize it, to put it together. Um, and then obviously, the camp week is like totally consumed. But um, there's so much fun. Um, it's one of the aspects that I really, really love doing at this point um, is like really, really focused, take a week um, or a couple of days for the adult camp, go out and spend your entire, you know, entire 24 hours thinking about trail running and focused on helping other people become better at the sport. Um, and I really like it. Um, we're trying to kind of not just like coach people with running and training, but also to focus on trail running and all the different aspects that are involved in trail running. So, you know, whether it's like map and compass navigation, wilderness preparedness, um, helping people use apps so that they feel more comfortable getting out there on their own, um, things like that. You know, um, we also talk about uh, stewardship and trail maintenance, um, two of the things that people kind of tend to neglect, I think, or I, I feel like take, a, uh, take for granted a lot of times when they're out there, um, out there running trails that have been maintained and stuff. Uh, it takes a lot of work to put those things together and, and keep those things clear and um, so people can run on them. So. And you give a lot back to the sport with all these different things you're doing. You're you're helping other people get into it, helping other people get better at it and enjoy it more. And that includes, like I mentioned at the beginning, the the weekly speed group that you do is the first place that I ever met you that uh, you just do for free, and you've you've helped the the local running store to do that for a long time. So, I have two last questions that I just want to ask. So, one of them is what, what are the key, just a couple of the key principles or philosophies that you have behind training and coaching. And then uh, I'll ask the other one after you've answered that. Whew, that's a long, that's a big question. <laughs> At a high level, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, back to the beginning. I mean, I always want to keep it fun. And so that's a big point um, that I always make in whether I'm coaching people online individually or like especially in my camps and stuff. And so that's why we always try to make camp fun. Um, it's always a lot of fun for me. So I hope that it's a lot of fun for everybody else as well. Um, but I'm always like try, like trying to impress upon them um, the fact that, you know, you guys are doing something that's a lot of hard, hard work, but at the same time, like it's gotta be fun. Otherwise it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be enjoyable. And so you got to make it enjoyable, make it fun, even though you're putting yourself through a lot of pain. And it's, and it's not going to be sustainable because they'll just stop doing it. Right. Exactly. And it's just like you in a hundred miler, it's like, why do you do a hundred miler? It hurts. Uh, right. And so you've got to find the reason why you're doing these things. Um, and I usually tend to impress upon them that the reason they're doing it is because it's fun. Um, it might be type two fun where, you know, it's not very much fun while you're doing it, but you look back on it a week later and you're like, Oh man, that was really fun. I want to do that again. Um, and that's, that's, um, perfectly fine. So. And I think sometimes people think that there's a trade-off that you either are running for fun or you're running to compete. But I think, something that's clearly been consistent through everything you've said and, and everything you've done in years and years of, of racing is you can do both. That it's not just you have some fun or you are serious about this. You can be both at the same time. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I love competing. It's so much fun. The, the, some of the most fun that I've had in running is, you know, where you get into a race and you're like in a head to head competition with another guy that you, where you are so evenly matched that you're going back and forth the entire race 
and it takes until the last sprint to the finish. Um, and you know, it doesn't even matter who wins at that point, but it was just really fun to get to race that other person. Um, and sometimes, you know, that just, that is the most fun thing you can do in running. It's like, I love competition and it's the, the reason why I got into it. Um, and, and it's still there. It's, I still love competing. So. I 100% agree. Definitely some of the best memories I have are from those back and forth moments where you think you've got them and then they think they've got you. And even though it doesn't, well, it doesn't matter who wins, who gets it overall, but, but still the memory is there either way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the the last question I have is, um, what do you think you've learned from the people over the years that you've coached and helped out? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Um, see if I can point to anything specific. Um, uh, that's going to be tough to bring those, those memories back. But I mean, you know, I, I feel like, okay. Like one of the things I was coaching a, uh, 55 year old guy here in Bend, uh, for a couple of years. He was 55 at the time. Um, I was in my early thirties at the time. Um, and I think, Coaching him um, taught me that you've got to look at everybody a little bit differently. Um, I was what I was trying to do was kind of coach him the same way as I had been coached to start out with, and he kind of said, "No, no, 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 you can't coach me the same way that you coach yourself. You've got to coach me for what I am, which is a 55 year old guy who just started running a few years ago." Um, and stuff. And so that was, that was really interesting and a very, like very valid perspective, um, that I should be coaching him for who he is. And so that taught me a lot about, you know, taking, keeping in mind, like what people are going through, um, and what stage of life they're in when you're coaching somebody. Um, and so that was a pretty big, a pretty big learning point. Um, and, uh, something that is, is so true when you're coaching other people and stuff. And do you think that that also applies that you've learned that for, apply, for, for putting it in practice for your own training, that you, know, you training at age 40 is not the same as you training at college? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that oftentimes you can change your training. It doesn't always have to be the same. Like you're, you may be going through a period of time now where, you know, you can't like I'm speaking about myself right now. You can't go through uh, you can't do what you used to do right now. But maybe in another six months, you're back at a point where um, you're a lot stronger, you're healthier, you can get back into that um, that kind of training regimen that you used to do five years ago. Um, or maybe it has to be, you know, a week at a time. Like one week you can do that, but the next week you have to take um, take pretty easy and you have to fluctuate your training a lot more. And so, um, tr- like, I've always tried to train myself for the moment of time that I'm in um, and make sure that I'm doing the right thing for myself at that time, which is honestly, that's part of the reason, like I haven't had a coach in, you know, probably about 10 years is because I want to be able to coach myself, um, and put myself through, um, uh, through what I can handle at the time and not have somebody else try to tell me what to do. Well, thanks so much, Max. Um, loved the, the points you brought up and, and I think I can't, bring it home enough about how much you do every element of this sport uh, and you give a lot back to people. So was there anything else you wanted to mention or anything to expand upon that I didn't ask about? Ooh, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, we've, we've had a long conversation, 
about just about everything too. <laughs> that, that's what I tend to do with these because I, I write down everything I want to ask the person and uh, hopefully get through most of it. So uh, that, that covered a lot. So thank you so much for your time and uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, around Ben soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You can follow Max on Twitter and Instagram at, at MaxKingOR. Uh, or you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanultra.com. And also let me know if there are other particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. We have contact details for Max and myself in the show notes. Um, plus, it's really appreciated if you rate or subscribe to the podcast, which helps us get found by more runners searching for this type of content. Check out podiumrun.com as well for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself. Um, thank you and see you next month.